morning scripture reading will be from the book of Numbers, chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. Numbers, chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. And I will be reading from the New King James Version. The king of Arab, the Canaanite who dwelt in the south, heard that Israel was coming on the road to Ethereum. Then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. So the name of that place was called Hormah. Then they journeyed from the Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, no water, or so loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Well, it is certainly good to see everyone this morning. We look forward to the time when uh, this uh, sickness and craziness and all these things that are happening will go away and we can have our full amount of people here and we can fellowship with one another like we used to. Especially good to uh, have Tom and Kay visiting with us. They've been visiting with us the last few uh, Sundays and we are always happy to see them come out and, and be with us. You know, the area in which we live is an outdoor lover's paradise. If you like the outdoors, you like to hike, you like to ride bikes, you like to do any number of things that you can do outside, then uh, East Tennessee, particularly I believe our area, because of the milder weather, as opposed to northeastern Tennessee, is really kind of the place where you want to be. But, as uh, we take advantage of the area in which we live, it is always wise to be aware of your surroundings, isn't it? You know, there are some things living out in our yards and our woods that can be a little dangerous. We've got some black bears. A friend of mine uh, had to uh, do some things with his, uh, with his cats and with his uh, garbage cans and different things like that uh, because the black bears were coming up into his yard and causing problems. And you don't want to come across a black bear if you can keep from it. Of course, also, you know, we have a couple of spiders in our area that are a little bit dangerous. The brown recluse happens to be one. Now, you're going to come in contact with that that little fella probably in a, in a shed or in your house or something like that. You might come in contact with a black widow in those same areas, but you're more likely to find that black widow outdoors. The black widow likes to be in dark, damp places under something. You pick up a log, you pick up a board. Uh, I remember one time... And this was extremely uh, 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 problem, problematic for me 
I went to move a doghouse and I tipped that thing up on its back. There must have been ten big old fat black widows living underneath that doghouse. I said, man alive, of all people. But anyway, that black widow spider is very dangerous. It's very dangerous, the most poisonous spider we have in our state. Of course, then, you might come across a snake or two. There are 34 species of snakes that call Tennessee home. I wasn't aware of that, but there are 34 of them. Fortunately, for us, only four of those snakes are venomous. I used to say poisonous, but that's incorrect. It's venomous because you ingest poison, venom is injected. And of course, uh, the most common to us is going to be the copperhead. You have the northern variety and you have the southern variety. You also have what is known as the western pygmy rattlesnake. It's only found in one spot in Tennessee. It's in the basin of the Tennessee River over in west Tennessee. We're not going to see that thing around here. Also, there is what we know as the, uh, the water moccasin, the western water moccasin, also known as the cottonmouth. And though a lot of people think they see those uh, snakes in our area, you're not going to see that thing except in West Tennessee. And I'm thankful for that. But then you have the most venomous snake in our state. It's called the timber rattlesnake. The timber rattlesnake is the largest of the venomous snakes that we have in our state. And it is extremely dangerous because it has very long fangs. It uh, uh, injects an enormous amount of venom when it strikes. It's also known as the uh, canebrake rattlesnake in, uh, by different names. Not only is it the largest and most venomous snake in our state, and you're going to find it uh, uh, only the uh, timber rattlesnake and uh, a variety of the copperhead in East Tennessee, but it is also the second largest uh, snake in the eastern United States, only behind a uh, venomous snake, only behind the eastern diamondback. And it is one of the most dangerous snakes in the nation. Again, because of its long fangs, uh, uh, the enormous amount of venom that it uh, injects into the victim. But fortunately for us, it is a relatively mild-mannered snake. It'll rattle quite a bit. It'll faint quite a bit. It wants you to go away and leave it alone. And unless you want to bend down and try to pick it up, it's likely not to bother you. And you'd be shocked, maybe you wouldn't, at the number of people who try to do that. Also, it spends a whole lot of time, uh, what we might say, in a dormancy period. It'll crawl back up into a crag of a cliff area or something like that, and it'll just be there for a long period of time. Also, uh, it'll let you know it's there. You know, that's one of the great things about a rattlesnake. Now, hopefully its rattles haven't been broken off or something's happened, but it'll usually let you know that it's there so it can be avoided. Uh, toward the end of uh, 2019, now normally the timber, rattle, timber rattlesnake is most active in July and August. But in late summer of 2019, northern Georgia, lady living on Lookout Mountain, she was in her backyard, and she was having a picture made, and she understood about the timber rattlesnake, and she always told people wear closed-toed uh, shoes and be very aware of what's going on when well, she was having her picture made in her backyard with a pair of flip-flops on, and then she felt something stab her in between her toes. Well, she had to come to Erlanger Hospital. She spent several days in the hospital finally recovering from that. Now, 
the problem with the timber rattlesnake is it injects a hematoxin venom into the body. What that does is it begins to digest and break down the uh, the the cells of the body. The flesh begins to to rot, and you'll swell up, and you'll turn black and blue, and and blister and. And uh, one man here in Tennessee got bit on the finger, and his finger swelled up to the size of a lemon. He waited seven days, brethren, before going to the to the hospital. He was bitten by a timber rattlesnake. But, uh, you know, snakes have been around since the days of creation. And uh, the first time that we read about a snake, particularly a serpent, uh, aside from the days that those types of animals were created, is in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the first couple, they're doing their uh, 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 business in the garden, and Eve finds herself over there around the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent presents himself to Eve. Of course, this is Satan taking the form of a serpent. And uh, he tempted Eve to sin, and she did, and in turn she encouraged her husband Adam to sin, and in turn he willfully did that, ignoring everything that God had previously told them. Now, because of that, the first couple in the snake were punished for their roles. We know what happened to Adam. He was going to have to work a lot harder. He was going to have to fight the thistles and the thorns. Eve was going to have pain in childbirth, among some other things. And then this serpent, who appears maybe had legs at one time, was going to have to crawl up on its belly and eat the dust of the ground. And there would be enmity in between the woman and the snake. Now, I believe that's a twofold prophecy having to do with uh, the mother of Christ, but also having to do with this enmity between humankind and the serpent. You know, enmity means hate. Enmity means hate. And as we look out at the animal kingdom, is there another animal in the world that has such hostility and such hatred uh, uh, toward it by humanity? I think the snake probably ranks right up there at number one. Now, obviously, there may be a few people in the world, maybe myself included, who fear a few other things. Maybe the snake is number two, okay? But, uh, uh, you know, the snake is hated and feared throughout the world, throughout the world. And uh, we see that as we uh, look around us. Now, understanding that, now we have the example of Israel before us in the passage read for us by Brother Jeff this morning. Those events that he read about occurred near the end of Israel's journey. They'd been in the wilderness for about 40 years, and by the time they came to this point in their lives, Israel was just sick and tired of about everything. They were sick and tired of the journey. They were sick and tired of God's plan to get to Canaan. They were sick and tired of the route. They didn't like the food. They didn't like the lack of water. They didn't like each other. They didn't like God. They hated Moses. They were a most miserable group of people. They were terrible. Can you imagine having to live with about three million of those fellows? And having to be uh, responsible for them? Now in verse 4 of the passage, it tells us that they were going around the land of Edom by the Red Sea because Edom would not allow them to pass through their land. They thought they were a bunch of spies. But here's the problem. The land was rocky. 
The land was hard to travel around. There wasn't a lot of good water there. You know, that rocky area and that terrain, perfect for a snake. Perfect for a snake. Of course, it wasn't the timber rattlesnake, but they love that kind of geography. Now, what happened here is the main problem is they were tired of being punished for their own bad attitude. They were mad at God for punishing them because they had done wrong. But they didn't want to change. You see, that's the problem, isn't it, with sin. They didn't want to change. They wanted to keep right on doing what they wanted to do. They wanted to go on into the land of Canaan. They weren't going to make it. But as a result, Moses recorded this, Numbers 21.4, The soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. Have you ever been on a hike and... And you get about halfway through it and you realize all of a sudden maybe I was a little more ambitious than what I should have been. You know, you're worn out, you're tired, you're hurting. I can recall many years ago, Nicole and I went up to the Smokies and, and we took a little trip up to uh, Ra- uh, Ramsey Cascade. Now that's just an eight mile trip, round trip. You know, I'd, I'd gone on hikes like that before. Brethren, it's straight up. Okay, it's straight up. I got about 150 yards from the end and I was done. I just sat down. I told Nicole, I said, go on and look at that cascade. I'll be waiting on you on the way back. I've gone, I'd gone 3.99 miles and I was finished. She said, no, come on. So I went on. I went on. You know, it was a beautiful cascade. I'll just tell you. Uh, aside from being able to do that with my wife, I don't know that it was worth it, to be honest with you. I mean, I've seen waterfalls before that I thought were much more beautiful than that. But I, I accomplished the goal. I thought I was going to die before I got back. So I can understand, I can identify with these people on being discouraged. But you know, I, my discouragement at that point in, in what Moses is talking about, two different things. The people became discouraged, was much discouraged. Let's understand what that means in the context of Numbers 21. In the context, the phrase means to be short, be impatient, be vexed, or to be grieved. They weren't discouraged in the sense of downhearted. I've gone as far as I can go. I'm going to sit right here and die or until someone comes and carries me out of here. That's not the discouragement they had. They were angry. They were short-tempered. They were grieved toward God and they were upset and mad. That's what it means. Now that takes on a whole other idea, doesn't it? That takes on a whole other idea of what these people were feeling. In spite of all that God had done for them, now they're angry at Him more so than they've ever been in their lives. They had had it up to here with God and they were finished with Him. Now because of their sinful dispositions their refusal to accept the responsibilities of their sins and their situation, they're continually blaming God and Moses, they were introduced to the most hated and feared animal in the world, the fiery serpent. God used that to grab their attention. Now, we need to see the issue. They could have avoided that if they had simply been mindful of the snakes if they had simply paid attention to their surroundings in the outdoors, much like we have to when we go outside. If we're mindful of the snakes, we're mindful of the bears, we're looking out for the skunks, 
and all of those things, then we're probably not going to encounter them. But that's not what they were doing. Now, obviously, we're talking about something more so than just your physical surroundings. The title of the sermon this morning is Be Mindful of the Snakes. The snakes we're talking about is the snake of bad attitude, the snake of impatience. You know, impatience with God leads to sin. And they were becoming impatient with God. They didn't like His plan. Have you ever heard that before? You ever spoken with someone who didn't like God's plan? And they wanted a plan of their own? Well, that's impatience with God. That's uh, uh, being short-tempered with God and not accepting what He wants. Of course, our situation there is just a little bit different. But they should have been mindful of the snakes. Now, the snakes we're going to be focusing on again are those of the mind. Israel allowed this discouragement, this short-temperedness, this angriness, all of these other things, they allowed that to prevent them from being what God needed them to be. And their tempers cost them their relationship with God. Now, that's what we're going to focus on this morning. Not allowing life's circumstances to get in between us and God and for us to be drawn off, not paying attention to our surroundings and not being mindful of the snakes. I want us to begin with Israel's sin. That's our first point. Israel's sin. The people, as we look at Israel's sin, had rejected the person of God. Notice what verse 5 said. And the people spake against God. Now never mind that this is the same God who saved them from 400 years of slavery. This is the same God who took care of them, who gave them victories. Even the heathens of Canaan who lived in Jericho had heard about that Red Sea crossing and they feared God. Not these Israelites. As a result, God judged them harshly. We need to understand that idea of harshly, don't we? It wasn't as if God was was just harsh and mean. And You know, when we use that word, normally we intend it to be, you're being harsh or you're being mean, you're being overly whatever the case may be, right? No, God God judged them harshly. He judged them hard. He gave them what He said He was going to give them. He's just and He's fair. He's not looking for an instance to do something to those people. He's looking for an instance to be able to save those people. But instead, He judged them harshly. God's not too sensitive. He doesn't wear His feelings on His sleeve. You're not going to hurt God's feelings unnecessarily uh, through uh, uh, ignorance or something like that. He understands. He understands. Now, you can hurt God's feelings. We can hurt God. But He's not looking to be hurt. You know, there are a whole lot of people in the world looking to be offended, looking to be hurt. I think the thing that that we notice about Israel was they were very good at, at a couple things. Following God wasn't one of them. Okay? They were very good about complaining and griping. Very good about that. As you look through the book of Numbers at least ten times recorded for us. That's not counting the times not recorded for us if there were some. They murmured against God. They didn't like this. They didn't like that. They didn't like uh, uh, the food. They didn't like the uh, accommodations. They were so full of anger toward God, they began to dilute themselves and say, man, it was better in slavery. I've never heard of someone saying, boy, it's better in slavery than it is out here. 
That's ridiculous, isn't it? That's ridiculous. And so, I want us to imagine the audacity of those people to stare in the very face of God and complain to Him about Him. The ruler of all things, the creator of all things, the Lord of lords, the God of gods, the King of kings, the one who brought them up out of Egypt and saved their lives, they doubted God's word, didn't they? He said, I'm going to take you to a land flowing with milk and honey. And they said, no, you're not. You brought us out here to die. You didn't bring us out here to inherit some kind of a great place. They doubted God's word. You know, Paul reminded the Romans, Romans 3, 4. He said, let God be true, but every man a liar. Don't doubt God's word. He told Titus, Titus 1, verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. God cannot tell. It's not possible for God to tell a lie. It's never going to happen, yet they doubted God's word. They, they sinned against the person of God. They rejected Him. God holds His word in high esteem. You know, God swore by Himself because He couldn't swear by anything higher. The psalmist wrote this, Psalm 138, verse 2. He said, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. God expects us to take him at his word, to believe what he says, and to do what he's commanded. He expects that because he is a man of his word. He will do every single time what he said he would do. The people rejected the person of God in their sin, and they also rejected the provision of God. He provided for Israel every day. Food and water. Did they appreciate it? Not at all. Not at all. Listen to what they said. For there is no bread, neither is there water. And our soul loatheth this light bread. Verse 5. Now I grew up hearing... I don't think we ever use this terminology. We just said bread. But I grew up with some friends of mine who when they talked about sandwich bread, they talked about light bread. I guess because... You know, at that time, we weren't as health conscious as we are now. We ate white bread. I never ate whole wheat bread until I got married. And my wife forced me to do that. I ate white bread. You know, white bread's not good for you, but boy, it is good, isn't it? So we always heard it as light bread. And, and I would read this passage, and I would think that's a description of manna. That's not a description of manna. Light, as in worthless. Light, something not worthy of my attention. Uh, uh, you know, to loathe means to be disgusted by. I'm disgusted by heaven's food that's sent down to us. It was uh, one man did some research, and I failed to, to think of his name. I, I forgot to write it down. But to feed that number of people every single day would take about 240 train cars of manna. 240 train cars of manna. Just given to them. All they had to do is pick it up. They didn't have to hunt for it. They didn't have to make it. They didn't have to grind anything. They didn't have to bake it. It simply was given to them. Light means worthless. You know, manna was far from worthless, wasn't it? It was not only their strength and their sustenance, it was their salvation. Without it, they would have died. It's hard to find food under a rock, usually, isn't it? 
Hard to find food in a wilderness, deserted area where no life is except those things you want to avoid. Hard to find that sustenance. But God gave it to them. They would have starved. Yet, the one thing that gave them life in their sin, they rejected it. They didn't want it. Have you ever known anyone like that? You know, have you ever known someone who would reject the very thing that would give them life? You know, there are certain denominations in the world they won't accept any kind of medical attention. They allow their children to die. The Jehovah's Witnesses will not take uh, blood because of uh, uh, Paul talking about not eating blood because uh, in Leviticus talks about not eating blood. Well, he's talking about eating blood, right? He's not talking about putting it in your body. Because the life is in the blood. If you don't have blood in your body, you don't have life. Right? And so people will reject the very thing that will give them life. Does that happen in today's world concerning salvation? Will people reject the very thing that will will give them life? They'll reject uh, the Christ. Do you know that the Pope of the Catholic Church, it wasn't that long ago, he visited the Middle East. He, uh, uh, I don't remember which... uh, leader of the of the Islamic faith he was with, but he kissed him on the mouth. He said that uh, Muhammad was on the exact same level of as Christ. Jesus came to bring Christianity. Muhammad came to bring Islam. Can you believe a worthless individual make a statement putting Muhammad, who was a con artist, he was a liar, he was a cheat, he was a thief and a murderer... On the level of the Christ? And this guy is leading the largest, quote, Christian denomination in the world. There's over a billion adherents to the Catholic faith. He's rejecting the very thing that gives life. People do it with God's plan of salvation, don't they? They'll reject it. They don't want it. The thing about sin is there's always a sentence, isn't there? That's our second point. We notice the sin. Now notice the sentence for Israel's sin. The sentence for sin is always deserved. God does not punish unjustly. Paul warned the Romans, Romans 6, 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Muhammad. No, he didn't say Muhammad. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. The audacity of a human being, a creature of uh, made by God, a person, to place Muhammad on the level of Christ. Mormon religion does it. The Jehovah's Witnesses do it. The Christian scientists do it. Almost every single denomination will do it. They'll place some man on the level of Christ. Well, our our gift of eternal life comes through Christ Jesus. A wage is something that is earned, right? You go to work, in exchange for your good work, you receive a wage. That's what we do, right? If you, if you have a business and you hire someone, you expect an honest day's labor for an honest day's wage. So you earn a wage. Notice that sin... Or death is the wage of sin. See, you've earned that death. It's deserved. But eternal life, that's a gift. 
That's a gift God's given to the people of the world just simply because He wants to offer that. But not, not death. Sin or uh, uh, death is a wage as far as sin is concerned. Israel's sentence for this particular sin was the fiery serpent. The serpent has always been a symbol of sin, hasn't it? When we look through the Revelation, talk about the great serpent. We're talking about uh, Satan, sin, things in general like that. When we see a serpent, we understand that that means that that is a representation or it stands in for sin. Just as Jesus, or excuse me, just as Satan disguised himself or took the form of a serpent, rebellion against God is also represented by a serpent. It was fitting punishment to send the serpents among the people to pay them for their labor of sin. They earned it. It was deserved, right? Sin has this ability to hold great power over those who are not mindful of the snakes. Sin will do it every single time. Sin will sink its fangs into the flesh, both physically and spiritually, of the person participating in that sin. It will rot the flesh. It will rot the spirit. We become empty on the inside. We become something we do not want to be and it inflicts this great pain upon us. That's what the fiery serpents did, right? It inflicted great pain upon the people of Israel. Same thing happens today. Sin inflicts great pain. I spoke with a young man the other day, and I said, you are destroying your parents. You're destroying your parents. That's what sin does. You're destroying everyone around you who, who loves you. That's what sin does. Now, the particular viper which afflicted Israel caused uh, certain problems to its victims. It was truly a fiery pain. The fiery serpent named such because at the injection site of the venom, it felt like fire. Swelling began immediately. Discoloration of the envenomation site went from flaming red to purple to very dark blues. Swelling happened immediately. Extreme thirst, liver and kidney damage from filtering the toxins of the body. Extreme tenderness to the lower abdomen. Very painful, very painful. Hemorrhaging happened in the form of nosebleeds or bleeding from the mouth or eyes. Injecting that venom, beginning to break down the capillaries that are at the, at the tops of the, uh, uh, just below the skin and rupturing them all over the body, particularly at that site. As the toxin flowed throughout the body, caused damage and, and destroyed everything in which it came into contact. Quick death from the viper's bite was absolutely out of the ordinary. You would suffer for up to several days before finally dying. What do we learn from that? Serpent, the serpent, is a symbol for sin. Suffering follows sin every single day. Time. Someone says, well, I've known people who lived in this world. No one was any sorry or more sinful from them. Uh, uh, they died with a huge bank account. They had everything in this world they wanted. But you know what happened once they passed? They're standing next to the rich man, being tormented in this flame, wanting nothing but a drop of water. And all the money in the world, all the good times in this world could not help that. But I want us to remember... What Jesus said, and this is very important because here's what Satan wants us to believe. It's too hard to be a Christian. You might as well just stop right now. You can't be mindful of all the snakes. There's too many out there. 
Jesus said this, For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light, Matthew eleven thirty. Does that mean it is never difficult in being a Christian? Listen, the Christian lifestyle is a difficult lifestyle, but in comparison to the wages of sin, it's extremely easy and light. And that's what Jesus wants us to understand. The sentence for sin is deserved, and it is deadly. Much people of Israel died. That's what sin does. But doesn't sin kind of thrill us in the short term, Hebrews eleven twenty five? Sure it does. If it didn't thrill us in the short term, it wouldn't be a problem, right? That's why we have to be mindful of the snakes. But ultimately, it kills us with a painful death. God said, the soul that sinneth, it shall die, Ezekiel eighteen twenty. Notice what James warned. James 1, beginning verse 14. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's a sin to be drawn away by that sin. Then when the lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. The sad part is, the sad part is, most people, Israel included, couldn't learn their lesson. They could not learn their lesson. They just did not grasp that God offered salvation from sin. That's our third and our final point. There's a process for salvation from sin, right? There's a process. And it has to begin with conviction. It has to begin with conviction. How are we convicted? Well, the Holy Spirit convicts us. and He doesn't do it in some kind of a miraculous way. He doesn't talk to me individually or personally. He's already spoken to me. He's explained to me in the pages of the Bible, God's inspired word, what sin does, what it is, and how I'm to avoid it. And then I can look at what God has stated. I can make that application to my own life. James says it's like looking into a mirror. You look at yourself, you see what you're doing, and then that convicts me and I understand I've done wrong, right? You know, when someone has been bitten by a snake, there's there's only two possibilities. There's only two possibilities that can happen. You can sit there and die, or you can get up and do something about it. The world is sitting there and dying. The world is sitting there and they're dying and they're not doing a thing about it. For a short time, Israel allowed themselves to be convicted and they got up and they did something. Here is the thing. No matter what steps you take, no matter what someone does, until we recognize I have sinned, I'll never be saved. I'll never be saved. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. Isn't that what Jesus meant, John 6, 44? No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me. Draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. How do we come to the Father? We have to first be convicted. We have to go to the Father through Christ because we've been convicted of sin. Along with the conviction, we have to have contrition, right? We have to recognize a few things. We must realize our hope is in God. Some person can't save us. I can't save myself. When we get bit by a timber rattlesnake out in the woods, I can't do a thing about that for myself. I can't do a thing about that. You know, there are a thousand myths, uh, you know, that you can do to save yourself. Run, run some, 